I didn't know I was in retirement till I read about it, but um, I guess I've been out. I've been out of the running for long enough for people to wonder. And and strangely, it happened in a strange way because I was trying to get some money for a film that my wife was trying to finance. We were living in Italy at the time, and I thought, well, you know, who are the people that I can call to get money? I thought I'll call Harvey Weinstein. We've had a long-standing feud between us for the last 20 years, but in a kind of good-humoured way. And I heard he hadn't been very well, so I thought ruthlessly, I'll get him while his resistance is down, you know. <laughs> and uh, I called him, and I t- he didn't give me the money, by the way, but <laughs> I called him, and during the course of the conversation, he said, oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is looking for you. And it's true that at that time, I guess, we, we hadn't, not that many people knew where we were. And so one thing led to another, and I, I ended up talking to Martin about it. And I, I decided not to work in movies for a while. But when Scorsese gets in touch with you, you know, to avoid him, you'd have to circumnavigate the globe because he's such a mighty presence. And he's a friend and somebody I admire as much as anybody working in the movies at the moment and always have done so um so he just started telling me about the what he was doing and you know he got his hooks into me but you weren't persuaded immediately sure you weren't I wasn't no but I was the reason I wasn't persuaded is was because I wasn't sure that I had I was I'd be able to give him what he needed not just in terms of the demands of the movie itself and the character and so forth but really in terms of whether I was ready at that time to go back into the tunnel you know and as it turned out I thought well (laughs) package I'll give it a go but I read about um, not only uh, Scorsese himself spending a lot of time and effort trying to get you involved but then they brought on the cavalry in the form of Leonardo DiCaprio who knocked on your door in Wicklow. Absolute hogwash. All of it, I mean all of it. Especially if you see anything in quotation marks from Harvey Weinstein, just throw it straight in the bin. Um, as I've I, I reminded him a number of times since we did it, I said, you know, you, Harvey, you know that I made this film in spite of you, not because of you. I told him, I said, the only thing we've got in common is that we both married above ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I flew to New York to talk to Martin a greater length about it. Harvey did a big number on me, and to this day he believes that, because he took me to some, you know, mafia joint, and, you know, to have dinner, that I was suddenly the, the world of the gang, where I'd been a number of times before, you know, suddenly that world of the gangsters, you know, took a grip on me. It's absolute nonsense, Quite obviously, my entire focus was 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 first and foremost on Martin, the story that he was going to tell, and and the question, my own question of myself, whether would I be able to to give him what he needs from me? Because the worst thing in the world is to feel that you're letting somebody down, you know. Um, and uh, Leo, I met during the course of that time, and I talked to him about it, and liked him tremendously just uh, as a person. And I've admired his work for, for, for many years as well. So that certainly helped, but uh, the focus was elsewhere. Presumably because Scorsese, this was his lifetime ambition. This film was something he wanted yeah. to make for so many years. Yeah. That passion has to rub off, especially on, I would think, an actor such as yourself 
who only gets involved with projects that mm. you would be so passionate about yourself. Absolutely, Rob, it definitely does. It's irresistible. I mean, that's part of the problem. I, I, it was with a sense of dread that I called Martin about it because I, I, I knew, I didn't know what he had in mind. I'd heard rumours about it, but I, 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 I had a feeling that whatever it was he proposed would be very hard to, to avoid. It's almost like in the end you say, it'd be harder to avoid this than to do it. Um, but conversely, knowing that he had spent 15 years of his life trying to realise this dream of his makes the, it, that much more important for you to be certain in your own self that you can be present, absolutely present, and be an ally because God alone knows, you know that he's going to be surrounded by naysayers at some time or another during the course of an eight-month shoot. And so you, you, you need to know that you can be a true ally during that time. And my challenge... We have met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives or the foreign hordes? And in terms of your own preparation for the role, obviously you're famous for your preparation before taking on a role and then maintaining character throughout the film when it's needed. What did you have to do for Gangs of New York? It's a funny thing, you know, because so many people have spoken about this on my behalf and it's something that I've always tried to avoid talking about, mostly because it's very hard to describe and also because by the time, when the time comes when you're asked to talk about that, you're almost reinventing the truth because already two years have elapsed and I'm thinking, well, what actually happened, you know, because you're necessarily you enter into something over which you have very little objectivity. Therefore, the memory of it is a kind of distorted thing. I'm being evasive here. But um, and another reason why I've always been reluctant to talk about it is that I've always wished, and it's a wish in vain because it'll never happen, but I've always wished that people could see films with clear eyes. In other words, without the endless preconceptions that are unloaded upon them through, you know, interviews and you know press tv etc by the time somebody goes to see a film they think they know everything they've seen how the stunts are done how the special effects are done they know how much the actors loved each other what they did to prepare what they had for dinner and quite honestly i don't care about all that stuff people believe that they need to know that but i don't think they do there's something tremendously refreshing about going to see a film and it's utterly mysterious I don't know if it's a comparable thing, but I mean, you can stand in front of a picture and admire it and feel something for it and feel a connection with it. And then you can perhaps go to the sketches and enjoy looking at the way in which that artist arrived at the thing that they finally chose to offer up. But to look at all the sketches first seems to me kind of self-defeating. Um, so the whole thing about preparation, I mean, of it... Most of the stuff is fairly obvious and logical. You know, you, there are things you have to learn that you don't know about. If it's a period film, you need to learn about the time. The, there are f different frameworks, the framework of the period, the framework of the society, framework of the character, um, 
framework of the story. All those things you have to you have to work within those things and learn everything that you can possibly learn about them. But that that's just details. Finally, the only important thing that ever takes place, if it works at all, is a kind of exchange between you and the life that you lead and the life that as you perceive it, of that character that you're moving towards. And if things work as they should do, you create for yourself, first and foremost, an illusion that you're seeing the world through a different pair of eyes. And it's as simple as that. It's really an imaginative work that takes place. It's indescribable, and the rest is just details. But people kind of talk about all that stuff as if it's a science you know what I mean some kind of clinical approach some structured thing that you know where you know you build block by block this this structure which you then you know walk around with it's not like that at all it's like when people talk about method acting and you are loosely lumped into the bracket of a method actor but it seems from talking to you that really what you're doing is doing the very best job you can in whatever (laughs) way suits you and suits the role. Uh, My training was a Stanislavski-based training at the Bristol Olvik School and and it was from Stanislavski that the method derived so they do have a lot in common and there was something that appealed to me very much about the internal journey that you take um, as opposed to the what's considered to be the British tradition where you stick on the <laughs> the bits and pieces and find the funny walk and hope that the rest will follow. And that never really interested me. It can be probably as effective if you find the right actor for the job. Basically, it's whatever works. I mean, I always felt that I'd, I don't want to know what other, how I, you know, if they want to stand on their heads with a daffodil stuck up there. <laughs> you know, that's, and it works for them. That's fine by me. You know, the only thing that matters is whether there's a genuine confrontation of two beings or a number of different thinking, breathing, feeling beings uh, when the camera's rolling. That's the only thing that counts. The rest is details. Leo and I, I think we had a very good working relationship. We necessarily kept a certain distance um, because of what the, the story demanded of us. There's a tendency on film sets because... You can feel very isolated when you're making a film. And in fact, during the course of, of a piece of work, you often see individuals at different times enter into their own private hell in a corner somewhere, and you know that the great weight of that question is hanging over them. What the fuck am I doing? What am I trying to do? Why am I here? Why did I accept to do this? And so forth. And the tendency, because that is true, is for people to cling on to each other. You see a lot of people hanging out with each other on film sets and socialising and hugging and, you know, just generally making themselves feel that they're not alone on the raft. And I always felt that, or for a long time at any rate, that in doing that, though it makes you feel better in the moment, you're, you're, you're letting go of energy which is vitally important for the work itself. And too much knowledge of each other is counterproductive to the work. Um, I always feel that one should always have the sense when the moment arrives and the film starts to burn in the camera that there's always there should always be the possibility that anything can happen. And as you get to know each other more and more, it's harder and harder to maintain that that possibility. I think. But I, I was going to, you know, I don't know how Leo felt about me. I would love to think that he enjoyed working with me. I, I can't say beyond that. 
um, it was suggested by some executive apparently in an interview in in the states in one magazine some nameless executive because they never put their names to that stuff had suggested that maybe my method of working had been had made leo's job more difficult but i i i would like to believe if you spoke to him he, he would absolutely disagree with that and i'd be horrified if that were true because i think part of your job as well is to is to help create the openings for the people that you're working with. But I, my feeling about Leo's work is that it's true that he is a, he's a huge movie star. But, I mean, you've seen his work before Titanic, right? I mean, This Boy's Life, um, Basketball Diaries. Um, Gilbert Grape. Gilbert Grape, in which he was quite extraordinary. Mm. He had established himself, himself as a very, very fine actor long before Titanic hit the screen. And I think Titanic was probably a fairly unhappy experience for him to make. It was, it was obviously a very, very difficult shoot. And and coincidentally, you know, the, the result of that was that he was uh, suddenly found himself in this, the full glare of the spotlight. And it's as if it's as if people have completely reassessed him. It's as if he was born at that time or something. They've forgotten that he was been a working actor for many years, and had genuinely established himself. And I think he is serious about his work. Whatever anybody else says about his, I don't know what, his girlfriends, his parties, his, you know, his, you know, he's late for work. He's this. He's that. The other. They just make up any of that kind of stuff. To, to, to fit the the image they want to put on him. But he's a serious working actor. He minds very much about the work he does and he applies himself to it. And he, his dedication, largely, I mean, he worked in collaboration with Martin for two years and, and his loyalty was never questioned um, before they finally managed to, to, to get the film off the ground. So, you know, he's, he's the real thing. Now, what about your working relationship with Martin Scorsese? Um, obviously, he got you hooked with his passion, <laughs> with his vision, with his film. When you were actually working together on it, did you both were you both in accord with how you wanted your role to progress? How you the storyline with all of that? Did you find a great sense of uh, achievement, a mutual achievement from both of you working together? Yes, I would say so. Um, I, I'd had the great good fortune to work with them once before. Um, which in my lifetime I had never conceived of as a possibility before it happened. I mean, when I when I was coming up with all, all, all my mates at the time in London, we first saw Mean Streets and it opened up a, a world that we didn't even suspect existed. And after that, every time that uh, one of Scorsese's films was going to be released, we, we waited for it and we watched it maybe five times in a week and we talked about it endlessly and talked about, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to be able to do that kind of a thing? So... So it was, a, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience to have that first chance. And I felt a great sense of complicity with him during that time. But interestingly, the, our, our relationship during the course of that was very much um, influenced by the nature of the character that I was playing and the piece that we were doing. In other words, it was much more formal in, in, in a nice way, in the right way. And in in this on this occasion, uh, there was a there was a much looser, rougher relationship because of because of the nature of Bill and 
and his feeling for Bill and, you know, and and therefore it was, the complicity was exactly the same, but the nature of our sort of daily encounters was, was very much influenced again by the nature of the piece, which is great. You were talking to me earlier about um, being involved in a film that had so much riding on it. Did you find that a pressure when you were shooting this film? People's reputations, the fact that it was costing so much, going so over budget, came in obviously so long and had to be cut and cut and cut until it's ready to be shown. Um, Did you find that tension mounting as things started escalating? No, no. And the the main reason why I didn't is because it's part of my job not to. If I'd taken a step backwards, um, I probably would have sensed it. But um, my job is to stay in the tunnel and other people worry about stuff like that. Certainly, you know, when it was all over, we could uh, then take a look at what we'd done and think, you know, man, we got away with it and so far so good. Then, you know, he had the whole editing process, which in itself was a worrying time to go through. But no, during one of the, the strangely negative I don't mean in a pejorative sense, but one of the negative uh, jobs that an actor has to do is to shut out everything that doesn't concern them. That includes anoraks, craft service tables, people, you know, eating, talking, laughing, cables, etc. All the paraphernalia of the modern world if you're trying to live in the five points and 1850s and so forth. And also anything that concerns finance and pressure and reputations and and petty disagreements on the set and so forth. Part of your job is to close down any even even the peripheral awareness of all that stuff because it, it only interferes with the work. And that's also true of I mean, bearing in mind that you're trying to convince yourself first and then, by nature of that, the audience, that you're living another life, that you are this other person, of course, there's an awful lot that you that you can't do. It doesn't matter if you prepare for a year or two years, five years, ten years. There's still so much of that life that's still there to be learnt and assimilated. So, again, part of your job when the... When, when the camera rolls, is to forget the stuff you don't know. You were talking there about um, Leo DiCaprio and his the effect that Titanic had on his persona and his media presence and all the rest of the tabloid fascination with him as opposed to his acting. Did you find that at all with you after my left foot? Um, because of its, obviously, it's you getting the Oscar and its global success. Did you find that you were being perceived very differently? Daniel Day-Lewis pre-My Left Foot and Daniel Day-Lewis post-My Left Foot. Well, it was undoubtedly a... a, a a time during which a lot of things changed. But but having said that, I'm, I'm quite canny. I mean, I in terms of what I know about myself, what I know that I need in my own life, I've always been quite canny. And so I, I think it was two years after that before I actually made another film. And everyone probably certainly in the film industry and in England they've I get they've always thought I'm nuts they that's the they choose to believe that um but certainly over there they probably thought that I was you know blowing this golden opportunity but I was just simply taking the time that I needed for myself to let the dust settle to let the din subside a little bit because there's so much noise around your head when those things go off you know what I mean um 
everyone's telling you a different thing. And I was just quietly pottering about and getting ready for the moment when I'd know it was time to get back into the fray again. So in a certain way, I avoided the worst excesses of it. And in doing so, I probably blew (laughs) a lot of possibilities. But it never worried me from that point of view. What do you think you're doing? Building a room for you. Don't be mad. Maybe if you have a room of your own, I'd start painting again. You have me heart broken, Christy Brown. Sometimes I think you are my heart. I would gladly take yours. What's wrong with you, Christy? I'm sorry, ma'am. The fact that you were um, a little bit older than some people when it happened to you, as in you weren't like, you weren't a child star or in your early 20s, do you think that that made, made it easier for you to deal with? Possibly. Possibly. Yeah, I think if I'd been a kid, it would have taken me in a different way. You have different kinds of ambition at different times in your life. And um, as a young, most young people want to make a mark on the world. You can't, you know, it's a, it's a human thing. And if you get to do it, you're lucky. But then if you do get to do it, there's some part of you, if you're, if you're really growing and moving on, that thinks, well, what was all that about? You know, how do I feel about that? Was that important for its own sake? And it probably was, but it's only important because you did it, because you got it over with, and then you can get on with more important things. And the ambition changes then and becomes much more about the thing itself, the work itself, and what's important. And maybe if I'd been younger, I'd have been caught up too much in the that kind of feverish need to just grasp things and do them. And, you know, I had a greater sense of time running out when I was 20 than I do now. It's funny. Now I don't mind losing time at all. I'm quite happy to look out of the window for six months. But then, you know, as weeks went past, if I didn't get a job, I'd be, you know, knotted up. I'm always worried about talking about this because, you know, I was an actor at one time that didn't know where the next job was coming from. And most actors that have had that experience for the rest of their lives will then take what comes their way with great gratitude and I do when the time comes to work and I do that work I am hugely grateful for it and it's not with a sense of ingratitude that I turn these things down or that I push them to one side it's purely because I know myself well enough to know that I can only work at my own pace and I'd be doing everyone a disservice including myself if I tried to work just for the sake of it when I wasn't up to the task But after my left foot, I maybe, I can't honestly remember, but I think even at that stage, I I clearly knew that it was was just time to stay away from it. And I can't honestly tell you what I did during that time, but I don't idle the time away. I'm always doing something which feels useful to me, even if it's not apparently of any great consequence to anyone else. And, um, And the image that I've grown to, to feel is the most descriptive of these periods of time is 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 like when you leave a field lying fallow because the soil is depleted and you just need to let it 
you know, build up its strength and its nutrients before you can, you know, graze on it again. And that, that's kind of how I feel. So what was the turning point then that made you think maybe at the time is right to get back into that tunnel again, to work again, to act again? I think the first thing I did quite surprised myself and uh, because I think the last the next thing I did after that was Last of the Mohicans and it was certainly my having discovered a way of working with Shay Sheridan and and finally found for myself I'd always suspected that there was a way to work um if I could only just buy that time for myself and find it that would suit me right and it happened on my left foot I'd sort of begun along that route, but it first became really possible through my collaboration with Shay. And um, I had just assumed that I would go back to... I would always be working in that way, and it never occurred to me I'd end up accepting to do this kind of massive studio-financed adventure story. But the fellow who's a good friend of mine, Michael Mann, who's making that film, kept sending it to me. He's very dogged. He's like me. And I read it a load of times. Um, and and I sort of denied it quite a number of times. But there was some part of it that got a grip on me. And it was the first scene, actually. It was the, 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 the way in which the first scene was written, which was quite beautiful, which described these, these figures running through the forest um, and, and the deer hunt at the beginning. And it was the description of that family running through the forest that 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 wouldn't let go of me so in the end I gave into it and going back onto a set especially as you say it was a huge budget a big hollywood studio <laughs> yeah. movie yeah. you must have got an awful culture shock going from your yeah. relative solitary of the last couple of years to be like full on back into it again yeah yeah i i give that shock to myself periodically as i did with gangs of new york and it is a shock i'm reminded immediately First thing I'm reminded of is just about every reason why I'd stayed away from the business. <laughs> oh, my Jesus Christ, you see the caravans and the assistants charging around the place, yelling into walkie-talkies and food consumption and wastage and egos. power lines, egos. I mean, everything that just, you know, leaves me ruined. And um, so the first impression is, what what have I done? What am I doing? And soon enough, that burns itself off because by that time, of course, normally I would have spent a minimum of six months getting ready for this thing and soon enough the, the work just takes over. If you work in an ideal way, I feel that if you do the work beforehand, if you manage to find in, you know, the things that you're looking for beforehand, that the filming is really just like a continuation of what you're doing anyhow, rather than a new beginning. But yes, it, it, it's, it's a shock. It's a shock. I want you to go! If we go, there's a chance there won't be a fight. There's no powder. If we don't go in that, there's no chance. Love, you understand? Come! You've done everything you can do. Save yourself! The worst happens. Only one of us survives something of the other does too. No, you stay alive. If they don't kill you, they'll take you north up to the Huron land. You submit to you here. You're strong. You survive. You stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. 
getting involved with Sheridan again, your mm. second collaboration with him. Um, did he have to do an awful lot of tempting to get you back no, no, to do no, in the name of the father? Not. No, it never occurred. It never it never occurred to me that that we wouldn't work together again. I mean, I was yearning to 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 get back um, to doing something with him. But um, over the years, it's just a question of you have to coincide my compulsions don't always coincide with his my curiosity doesn't doesn't alight upon the same things as his does but then there are moments of of coincidence when they do and that's when you have to strike and um in fact <laughs> he's canny too because he 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 lent me his place it was before i moved over to ireland and he'd lent me his place to to spend a bit of time to as i thought recuperate from from I guess it was Jesus I don't even know anymore I think it was the age of innocence and during the course of that time he popped down to visit me and started telling me about Jerry Conlon he just kind of <laughs> sidled up to me and pushed the copy of Proved Innocent <laughs> towards me and I started reading that and I thought I know what's going on here and it's too late to do anything about it <laughs> <laughs> you were well, outmaneuvered it was easy it was the, I was an easy, I was a pushover. But working from the reality of people's lives, very difficult <laughs> lives and what they've had yeah. to go through, uh, because you're such a soul searcher yourself, it, does it come naturally to you? You want to bring that injustice to the world, show people what has happened. Well, here's the thing. I, there may be some part of you that responds yourself to that and therefore it's, it gives you a volition towards the subject and therefore towards the person that you want to meet and make that exchange with. But I, I always believe that, that to have aspirations for a film is a dangerous thing. I mean, first and foremost, you have to do it for very selfish reasons, personal reasons. Otherwise, you've lost the battle to begin with. If you set out to try and tell people about an injustice or or to change, you know, make encourage the judicial system to reassess itself or whatever else or you know make some social statement i think you've kind of gone off the tracks already um you've got to you've got to just narrow down that point of light onto the thing that you are curious about of course the story itself i was quite overwhelmed by and that gave me the initial thrust into jerry's you know into the life of you know, exploring the life of Jerry himself. But then it becomes like a personal thing and the same rules apply. You close down the stuff that you don't want to know about and um, and just get on with it. In the matter of Her Majesty versus Gerard Patrick Conlon, the case is hereby dismissed. Yeah! I'm an innocent man. I spent 15 years in prison for something I didn't do. I watched my father die in a British prison for something he didn't do. And this government still says he's guilty. I want to tell them that until my father is proved innocent, until all the people involved in this case are proved innocent, until the guilty ones are brought to justice, I will fight on in the name of my father and of the truth. How did you deal with the controversy afterwards? Obviously, from the the British point of view, they, they saw it as a load of one-sided propaganda. 
and Jerry Conlon himself wasn't overly enamoured with the film. How did you find that after you, you know, you had put all you had put of yourself yeah, into it? I wasn't concerned with it. Shay made a great comment when he was accused by one or other of those rags of having taken great liberties with the story. And he said, well, not as great as the liberties the judicial system took with, with Jerry's case. And I thought that was spot on. Um, but yeah, of course, there was some controversy. For me, the story is about the people. I'm not I wasn't trying to rock the you know, rock the boat. Of course, you know, if that happens as as a byproduct, so be it and and and, and good. But yeah, I mean there are bigots everywhere. So you've obviously finished filming Gangs of New York and it's coming out in a in a few weeks. Um are you back in we won't call it retirement, but I mean have you now closed the door again to any offers or are you seeing what happens in the new year, what's your plan? I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to take some time away from it again. As much as I love the work itself, I, I love the periods when I'm not doing it as well, and I'm looking forward to this one. I don't know how long it will be for. Um, it may not be for long. I really, really don't know. But um, I'm just looking forward to spending some more time with the family and um, and you know pottering about reading, doing some the things that I like to do. Because of the nature of this film, it's still got a grip on me. You know, I mean, that's another thing, too, is that these things don't just evaporate when you when you'd finish the final shot. I'm a kind of a one-track sort of a person, I think. You know, I find it very hard to think about more than one thing at a time or work on more than one thing at a time. As far as I'm concerned, my work hasn't been completed on this. What do you like when you've finished a shoot and you go back home. It scoops you out. And no matter how much you learn in your preparation for that work, in essence what you're doing, and in this case it was for eight months, is giving out, giving giving up that stuff, make, trying to make something, trying to make a, a cloth of gold out of all that, those bits and pieces, like a bric-a-brac shop. You've got to make some sense of it. And I'm always left with a sense of, depletion which goes back to that thing of letting leaving the field alone for a while because you really do feel there's just nothing left in yourself to give at that time certainly in terms of the work obviously at home you you have to pull yourself together because you know it's a different thing you know that 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 doesn't you know there's no end to that shoot (laughs) you know but do you find living in ireland now is better for you, for your soul, for your sense of peace? It always has been. I mean, since I was a kid and since um, it was always a place I came to in between work that I was doing before I lived here. So uh, it's always been that for me. Of course, it's different when you live in a place. It it, it is different, Um, but the differences are good ones.